Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 5, Half-Term Special. We like our half-term specials, don't we? We do. It means it's... we've got to half-term. <laughs> <laughs> true although you know we probably should dispel a few myths we, we obviously do it before half term so i can't say I, i've got that half term feeling right now no. but i hope that all of you with your feet up on the sofa have no at least it for us it's the promise of half term to come reasonably shortly but yes we we've uh, just sent our lovely student teachers off to school um, i think there was about one day where everybody kind of had a moment of wow we've just completed pgc induction and then the enormous teetering heap of other things that we'd parked for a whole month just overbalanced and engulfed all of us uh, yes. in an absolute maelstrom of email pain yes that is that is it that is pretty much it yeah. isn't it maelstrom of email pain is perfect i yeah. do feel the weight of that avalanche on my shoulders yes. but we've chosen to switch off our email accounts today yes. <laughs> or at least to ignore them for uh, for the time being so that we can bring you our usual light half-term episode so we've got things that we found things that we found interesting that generally tend to be loosely education related although sometimes not um and true to form neither of us knows what the other is going to be presenting today um so that kind of adds to the drama um and interest and intrigue so um yeah kind of the closest we could get to live radio i think tom Yes, and there's very noisy people in the corridor outside because we're back on campus with students. They're everywhere. I know, actual humans yes, teaching face to face. Yes, noisy ones. So uh, <laughs> please excuse, as always, the ambient noise that may be filling your eardrum right now. Yes, indeed. Right. So we've got, we always used to call this blogs, tweets and stories, but we're, we're so free and loose in this. It's just things, things and more things, really, isn't it? There, there may be some tweets, there may be some bits and bobs but i was going to go first wasn't i because i had something quite heavy to uh, impart or, or something quite uh, wholesome i suppose heavy in a light episode tom yes. come on heavy and wholesome wholesome what we need. i like to keep the balance you know okay so we've got something nourishing now okay and I, i've chosen this one. actually i chose this this one i chose this one a little while ago um and i've been saving it um and it's quite handy actually because we've touched upon this a little bit with uh, the mighty louise allen walker who we heard uh, just a few weeks ago mm. our, our repeat podcast guest all about numbers you know i like to bring uh, numerical things to the podcast because i know it makes you sweat much to my disdain that's okay so, go on i'll uh, so watch strap it. in there's a numerical one coming up so this is an article from the new yorker oh which is uh, a, a substantial magazine i mean i've had to chop it down quite a lot because if anyone does read um the new yorker you will know that um, new yorker articles rarely clock in at less than about eight billion words they're absolutely <laughs> enormous so i'm i'm more sort of recommending this for for curious people that want to read the whole thing but i'm going to do some little extracts from it and it's uh it's on a little hobby horse of mine you've heard me ask questions about this sort of thing to various ones of our guests so i thought i would bring an article about it and the the headline of the article is what data can't do nice by hannah fry um and the little sub uh title the stand first i think they call it in magazine world is uh, when it comes to people and policy numbers are both powerful and perilous so this is a heavily abridged version this is eight pages of tiny type which i'm going to abridge massively um, nice. here we go 
Okay. Tony Blair. Maybe you're old enough to remember Tony Blair. Tony Blair was usually relaxed and charismatic in front of a crowd. But an encounter with a woman in the audience of a London television studio in April 2005 left him visibly flustered. Blair, eight years into his tenure as Britain's Prime Minister, had been on a mission to improve the National Health Service. The NHS is a much-loved, much-mocked and much-neglected British institution with all kinds of quirks and inefficiencies. At the time, it was notoriously difficult to get a doctor's appointment within a reasonable period. Ailing people were often told they'd have to wait weeks for the next available opening. Blair's government, bustling with bright technocrats, decided to address this issue by setting a target. Doctors would be given a financial incentive to see patients within 48 hours. It seemed like a sensible plan, but audience members knew of a problem that Blair and his government did not. Live on national television, Diana Church calmly explained to the Prime Minister that her son's doctor had asked to see him in a week's time, and yet the clinic had refused to take any appointments more than 48 hours in advance. Otherwise, physicians would lose out on bonuses. If Church wanted her son to see the doctor in a week, she would have to wait until the day before, then call at 8am and stick it out on hold. Before the incentives had been established, doctors couldn't give appointments soon enough. Afterwards, they wouldn't give appointments late enough. Is this news to you? The presenter asked. That is news to me, Blair replied. Anyone else had this experience? The presenter asked, turning to the audience. Chaos descended, people started shouting, Blair started stammering, and a nation watched its leader come undone over a classic case of counting gone wrong. And I think we all probably know this, don't we, that you have to ring the doctor on the day now, don't you? You do. um, Hang around on hold uh, because they will only tend to give appointments on the day um, or just before. So it goes on to say the particular mistake that Tony Blair and his policy mavens made is common enough to warrant its own adage. Once a useful number becomes a measure of success, it ceases to be a useful number. This is known as Goodhart's Law, and it reminds us that the human world can move once you start to measure it. Deborah Stone writes about Soviet factories and farms that were given production quotas on which jobs and livelihoods depended. Textile factories were required to produce quantities of fabric that were specified by length, and so looms were adjusted to make long, narrow strips. Uzbek cotton pickers, judged on the weight of their harvest, would soak their cotton in water to make it heavier. Similarly, when America's first transcontinental railroad was built in the 1860s, companies were paid per mile of track. So a section outside Omaha, Nebraska was laid down in a wide arc rather than a straight line, adding several unnecessary yet profitable miles to the rails. The trouble arises whenever we use numerical proxies for the thing we care about. Stone quotes the environmental economist James Gustav Speth, we tend to get what we measure, so we should measure what we want. Numbers can be at their most dangerous when they're used to control things rather than to understand them, yet Goodhart's law is really just hinting at a much more basic limitation of a data-driven view of the world. As Tim Harford writes, data may be a pretty decent proxy for something that really matters, but there's a critical gap between even the best proxies and the real thing, between what we're able to measure and what we actually care about. And it goes on with a number of really interesting examples, which I will leave anyone who's interested in this to go and find and read, because you can uh, get these articles from The New Yorker for free. Um, And then it says right at the end, numbers don't lie except when they do. Tim Harford is right to say that statistics can be used to illuminate the world with clarity and precision. They can help remedy our human fallibilities. What's easy to forget is that statistics can amplify these fallibilities too. As Stone reminds us, to count well... We need humility to know what can't or shouldn't be counted.
Amen. <laughs> yeah, you've heard me go on about that to enough guests, haven't you? This idea that they're, you know, always gets gamed. I love those examples of the looms making tiny strips of fabric that are really, really long. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just crazy when you when you sort of put it in a list like that yeah. and, and you kind of juxtapose all of those examples. You know, they, they, they're clearly ludicrous. Yeah. Um, I really like the idea of Tony Blair coming unstuck as well. Yes, yes <laughs> in back in the day. Teflon Tony, as he was known back in the day yeah i'm sure we could probably put out that you know we, we do these articles sometimes don't we and we say what's the educational equivalent of this and quite yeah. frankly uzbek cotton pickers or whatever it was and strips of, of fabric and big bendy railways i think we we know our educational big bendy railways and strips of fabric and things we probably uh, could could talk about those all day long yeah i think we do and i suppose if there are any new listeners out there who are on um, it programs or nqts who are kind of new to teaching just have a little uh, thought experiment <laughs> have a think about <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's that quote isn't it that i think i think donaldson said when he was with us i can't remember where it where it actually came from which is shameful really but i use it when i start to teach my student teachers about assessment um and from my perspective it's assessment and drama but it's that quote about um we measure what we value do we value what we measure and i think you know that's just such a good way in to thinking about assessment um, and to start to think critically about what we do and do not decide to to measure um, whether that be how we measure teachers and their performance or how we how we measure pupils and their progress yeah definitely so there we go that was my that was my moderately heavy substantial one um, on my pet hobby horse of people put in statistics to bad use <laughs> like it thank you very much okay um so i guess it's me next um and i did the typical thing of ranging around um some new teacher blogs to see if i could find um something new and ended up um as always <laughs> just circling back to the mighty tom sherrington who yeah. never lets me down no. Um, and is always eminently sensible um, in his blog posts. Um, and I tend to align <laughs> with uh, with his opinion. Not always, I might add, but um, in this instance, I did. And this is quite hot um, off the uh, blog press. Of the Sherrington Press. Of the Sherrington <laughs> Press. Um, and uh, for those of you who don't follow his blog, he is Teacherhead. So just search for te- teacherhead.com. And this is a blog post that uh, came out on the 11th of October. October 2021 entitled well-being is an outcome we need actions not words um, and I think it's probably just for context men- worth mentioning that um, on our lovely podcast we decided to get rid of our well-being slot one of our three um, sort of short slots that we ask guests to contribute to that um, that we sometimes do if it's our episode and um, was a well-being slot and we ditched it because we started getting a lot of samey content coming through um, and some of the more touchy-feely stuff. Uh, I, I think it just kind of made us squirm a little bit, Tom, didn't it? If we're being really honest, well, what do you think? Well, I'm not a particularly touchy-feely type, am I? As you can, you can probably even tell through the audio medium, I'm a fairly spiky type. But um, <laughs> I, I think our main problem was that, that it, it was variations on a theme of get out in the fresh air, which is a brilliant, um, brilliant way to deal with well-being, obviously. But we, we sort of run out of variations on a theme, hadn't we? And uh, I'm going to be interested to hear this article because 
I think well-being is one of those things that you hear an awful lot about at the moment in in things and and I don't know I think there are some people who think that they've they've done well-being if they've just let everybody have a chat about well-being and everybody said oh let's let's have a walk and all of that kind of thing whereas actually I think it's it's a pretty knotty one I hope I'm not uh, preempting Sherrington here too much No I, well you, I, you are but that's okay because I think um at a true to form um Tom Sherrington usually takes quite a pragmatic and sensible approach to these things um and uh, yeah so I'll just launch into it he says recently I tweeted this about well-being and it seemed to resonate and I'll tell you that tweet in a moment so he goes on I was making the point that promoting well-being insofar as it relates to a school's responsibilities and its employees professional lives should be regarded as an outcome of doing tangible specific things that support them in their work um, and just as a side note I thoroughly agree with that perspective um, it's not about adding extra feel-good activities or smoothing things over with pleasantries and tokens it's much more fundamental again I was uh, doing a mini cheer when I uh, uh-huh. <laughs> when I heard those words these gestures might be nice things in themselves, but really schools should focus on the core activities of each person's working life so that their underlying well-being is considered, protected, enhanced. This was the list that came to mind in order, uh, in the order I thought of them in a rather ad hoc fashion. And this is what he included in the tweet. Um, so this was a tweet that was, that came out on the 10th of October at 12.10pm. So he says, distributed leadership... excuse me, excellent behaviour system, excellent CPD, manageable teaching load, exciting curriculum, tons of team time, intelligent appraisal, the opposite of a stay late culture, family first attitude, all equal well-being, actions, comma, not words. That was his, uh, that was his tweet. So what he attempts to do in this blog then is to just unpick that list. Um, so he says a couple of people then asked to expand on it. So um, that perhaps, uh, so he thought that it would be, be useful for them to um, have discussions around it with colleagues and, and leaders in their school. And um, if you're in a HEI context, um, then maybe you could do the same. So distributed leadership, he says a lot of stresses and strains emerge from feeling powerless within a decision making process that then has an impact on your life. Distributed leadership takes decision making to the point where it is closest to the action rather than from on high. This links to the much prized idea of teacher autonomy, but avoids the problems of dumping people into situations where they flounder or feel overwhelmed. It means giving people the right degree of autonomy within a wider, well-led organisation, not leaving people to sink or swim or to simply do what they're told without having a say. Um, and I think this is something that we've been doing recently um, at Cardiff Met in our ITE teams. Um, and, you know, I'm already starting to feel the benefit of that. I don't know about you, Tom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, the other one is excellent behaviour system. Um, and he goes into uh, issues surrounding challenging behaviour um, and this being the source of stress and anxiety. I'm not going to read all of them but the ones that may be a little bit more ambiguous I think will be um, useful to hear about. Um, One that he mentions is intelligent appraisal 
He says, this means stripping back the judgment culture, the onerous documentation and any residual deluded nonsense about high stakes lesson observations with grades or giant written reports. It means not having data targets based on specific classes. And this resonates with your article, Tom. Um, (laughs) It should be about ongoing development and feel fair, free from fear and proportionate in terms of workload. Um, the opposite of a stay late culture, he says this, uh, the message should be do your work and then go home or work at home as much as you feel you want and need to when that's possible. It should not be that it somehow looks bad if you're still not in the office doing some marking or making calls at 6pm. Don't raise eyebrows at people who sometimes leave bang on time to do personal things that are none of your business. Uh, that's a that's a controversial one, I think, in the world of, of education, particularly in in uh, in secondary education from my perspective. I don't know what you think about that one, Tom. Yeah, schools can be a bit funny. I did used to work with a colleague who was was great in almost every respect, except that they, they did used to make a point of telling us all what time they'd gone home the previous evening, like it was a badge of honour, and it was always you know, sometime well after 6pm. And and I just remember thinking, well, well done. But so what, you know? Yeah, I know. And this is it. And it kind of, it then leads into um, his final one. I'm going to backtrack and go back to one more. But he says about family first attitude. He says the message should be that family matters. Let's support each other so you can see your child in in their big assembly or concert and deal with family health issues as needed. I mean, this was definitely an issue when I was teaching that, you know, you wouldn't even think or I wouldn't have even thought to ask if I could go and deal with a family matter. Um, He says, be there for your family. This is your only, uh, this is only your job, not your whole life. And there are lines we need to draw sometimes. Don't treat everyone as if they're, as if they'll take the, inter-expletive they won't trust them be as generous as you possibly can be just really really like that and 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 hope and wish that that schools can can make that happen make that a possibility um and then um i really like this idea of tons of team time um and definitely in the context of curriculum reform in wales and curriculum fields we keep talking about time and space time and space time and space we said that about a million times <laughs> yes um and he says that here um with regard to cpd he says maximum time for curriculum thinking and collaborative planning team cpd and review processes is a big winner if you say cpd and everyone thinks oh no another big session in the hall that has nothing to do with us it could be that the balance is wrong in the ideal scenario people actually relish their team meetings because they are interesting supportive and useful keep the rest as lean as possible yeah i was going to mention the time and space thing as being um almost up there in the same category as the well-being thing which is that everyone will talk about it um but that it's a rare person who will actually do it and i did we, we we're going through a lot of curriculum reform here in wales as, as our listeners in wales will know and, and schools are grappling with an enormous sea change in the whole conception of curriculum and i did get a little bit spiky in a a meeting the other day to be honest where you know somebody was was saying again or oh, we need we, you know schools need to have time and space time and space and i and i did just sort of say well Go on then, <laughs> because we've been saying it for five years that everyone needs time and space. But saying we need time and space costs nothing and doing time and space is, you know, expensive and involves 
kind of you know making making these tough decisions you know it wasn't in any way the fault of the person delivering the session because they're not uh, in charge of these things but, the, but they were saying it and i was saying yes but but we talk about time and space in a similar way we tend to talk about well-being a lot in education but talking is not the same as doing is it not at all so actions not words he says enough with the well-being cheese and the good mm-hmm. intentions and the fringe benefits well-being tackle the cheese. fundamentals that's <laughs> a great i'm going to be deploying that in a chat window near you here we go here we go quote unquote from yeah. tom sherrington well-being cheese sherrington 2021 <laughs> I shall, I shall Harvard reference my mention of, of well-being cheese in a meeting near you sometime. <laughs> you wait for that. So um, I would urge everybody to read the full blog. I've given uh, a bit of a, a summary there and, um, you know, just taken some extracts from it. But uh, it's uh, it's another another gold dust entry from Tom Sherrington. So over to uh, our Tom Breeze ah, next. The golden Sherrington. He always delivers, doesn't he? He does. Okay, it's tweet time. Um, I had a, a various choices of tweets I could go with for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was mildly tempted. There was a brilliant thread of tweets the other day where um, somebody had come across a, a museum uh, kind of exhibiting his I don't know if you saw this historical examples of costume modeled on Barbie dolls going all the way back to sort of pre-Tudor times and all the way forward to kind of the 1980s all these Barbie dolls dressed up in these costumes and he reviewed them in in hilariously kind of creative ways but I did realize having read them that there were very few of them I could actually read out (laughs) (laughs) but they were really funny so instead I went with something a little bit more sober Uh, instead of that option Um, and it is this one a little thread of tweets um, which I originally spotted because it was liked by our vice chancellor herself oh Um, and it's from Laura Pickering Payne who uh, in her Twitter bio says uh, BSc speech and language therapy at Marjon Uni which of course is where the vice chancellor did her vice chancellering before she came here so that's probably (laughs) how she's ended up um, liking this tweet um previous teacher and lead iqa in further education she appears to be studying um speech and language therapy now Mm -hmm. so she said uh, the other day reflection a thread earlier this week a fellow student told me that i had an intimidating personality i was really surprised and asked if they could explain they said that i always know what's going on seem to be on top of everything academically and that i seem to be involved in a lot of extra societies additional activities and part-time work I've thought about this a lot. In reality, I struggle with imposter syndrome. I think I don't know what's going on. I have self-doubt and constantly worry that people don't like me. I compensate for this by double or triple checking dates and times, by arriving early, volunteering to do things even if they scare me, and by doing extra reading and research so I can appear to know what's going on. But perhaps my coping methods have worked too well. By masking my fear and true feelings, it seems that I might be coming across as intimidating. I aspire to be approachable and welcoming, so maybe I need to be more willing to show my true feelings and doubts. Or as healthcare professionals, is it our job to seem knowledgeable, calm and organised? There's definitely a thin line here. Has anyone else had any feedback that has surprised them and got them thinking? Whoa. Well, this is getting my palms sweating more than uh, more than the numbers. The numbers, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of guilty as charged in this room right now, isn't there? Both oh. sides of the microphone. Oh. <laughs> I think we both do that a bit, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's. I, I I hope that it dogs others out there in the same way as it dogs me, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and you know it really. Uh, 
when you start thinking about the impact it has on on others uh, you know aside from the fact that you're tying yourself in knots inside and the impact it's having on you it, it it does it really does force you to think i really ought to start either being a bit more honest or <laughs> just being a bit more human and having lower expectations of myself maybe mm. i don't know it's not it's not about lowering your expectations it's just about uh maybe just acknowledging that you can't know everything yeah yeah i remember you seemed pretty damn scary when i used to go to my first meetings with you before we came bestest buddies i thought oh my god she knows everything she's really scary but you're not you're really nice (laughs) god i just and that's so weird because i just don't think of myself like that but uh, but i realize a byproduct of me wanting to seem like i've got my proverbial in in one sock or together (laughs) my ducks in a row put that one in take the other bit out all right um I might. Um, I obviously am coming across in a way that uh, maybe is a little bit intimidating. So yeah, oh gosh, no, sweating. Well, it's funny because I was I was chatting to a colleague downstairs um, on the way to the office, and and we were we were commiserating on the size of our email inboxes and the amount of stuff we had done. She said, "Well, you always seem to be on top of absolutely everything." So uh, maybe the first stage is to do what I did, which is to put her damn right right there in the corridor and explain just how many things I'm not on top of at the moment, even though I don't aspire to be approachable and welcoming like this nice lady on twitter mm. um but is she, uh, yeah. is, is she from the medical profession did i get that right she seems to be i mean it's rather difficult to tell from her twitter bio so apologies for this laura pickering pain um it appears that she's been a teacher and is now training in speech and language therapy um, right so she's work. she's a student at the moment but she's um a mature student and a very experienced um professional by the look of it because mm, i mean there is such a performative aspect yeah. to what we do as mm. teachers generally but i suppose being a professional there is a professional identity which maybe some people are more comfortable with kind of performing that they're on it (laughs) yeah and we've talked about this before haven't we because we're both trained in the performing arts you know you're a drama specialist I'm a music specialist and we kind of I mean I know in my musical training you know you used to have it drummed into you that you could be really really good but if you didn't appear to be totally on top of stuff when you walked out on the stage then it was all for nothing and I used Mm. to literally go to things where they would they would do sessions on it they would teach us how to present ourselves on the stage you know and you you wouldn't actually get to play a note until you'd successfully walked out bowed and sat down at the piano or whatever and done it in the way that that they wanted and Mm. it seemed really over the top at the time but but you know having sat through some dodgy performances it is true that you end up gripping the sides of your chair a little bit too tightly to be comfortable and I suppose some of those attitudes that I've had drummed into me have maybe leaked out a little bit in the way I go about my my teachering but Mm. yeah it it did resonate with me and I I knew it would resonate with you a little bit as well so I I brought it to the table and maybe we'll make a we'll make a resolution to appear more shambolic and disorganized in future shall we (laughs) I I feel like I can't possibly turn shambolic and disorganized up any higher but you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's already gone past 11 and is on about 948 at the moment but there we are that's my perception maybe maybe perceptions differ i don't know <laughs> no it's definitely something to think about and definitely yeah something that resonates with me i will i will uh, speak to my counselor about this <laughs> Is that me? Tom Breeze. <laughs> when we finished recording yeah well you know it is interesting isn't it because you think you're making people feel 
Well, certainly I've, I've thought in about safe this, hands. You know, yeah, you think people are feeling in safe hands with you and, and then you sort of stop and think, oh gosh, are they actually feeling that you're, you're way too over the top organised and should chill out a bit and it's making people unhappy? I don't know. Um, I mean, I like to think I'm, I'm not waving but drowning, but apparently some people think I'm reasonably honest. <laughs> you need to change that fast. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think I always think that you're really on it, and I I, I see behind the curtain, so you know <laughs> I share an office with you, so there's no hiding in here. Oh well, um, yeah. yeah, definitely something to think about there. Yeah. So it's me next, yep. um, and uh, well, I'm just going to tell you outright then if we're if we're sharing and revealing uh, our incompetence. Right. Um, I gave this one the least thought, um, but okay. actually, I think I. I'm hoping it's going to go down well with the listeners. So this is more like a something to try. Um, it's two kind of somethings, two things to try. Two somethings. <laughs> yeah, maybe just don't edit this episode, no, not, Tom. No. That's and what then, I'm going to do. Yeah, that's it. As a gift in, to yeah. everybody. If this is if this sounds really shambolic, blame Laura Pickering Payne. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Laura. to find you, Laura. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I recently attended um, what was meant to be some professional learning for new drama teachers that was put on by the National Theatre um, in London, but it was a digital thing that happened online via Zoom, as is often the way these days. Um, and we had a selection of workshops that we could attend. And obviously I went along as well as a teacher educator of drama teachers. Um, and I attended a workshop entitled Shifting Mindsets and Embedding Anti-Racism. Um, and I just want to kind of tell you about just a really simple little exercise that we did that I thought was um, a nice way of a getting to know new groups, but also kind of maybe getting to understand the people that you teach afresh or new things about them um, by way of this exercise. And I'm also going to talk about a very short little exercise that one of the senior mentors, um, the esteemed senior mentors who's been on the pop- pod- podcast before um, from Stanwell School in Penang. Panath did with his new cohort of students who are linked to his school for our PGC programme here at Cardiff Met. He did this lovely little exercise um, on first meeting with this group that I'm also going to share with you. Okay, so back to the first one, which came in this shifting mindsets and embedding anti-racism workshop I attended. Um, We were tasked during the session with finding something in our houses because we were all learning from home at that point um, that reveals something or or helps us to talk about our ethnicity um, but obviously it could also be used as a stimulus um, to inspire theatre making but in this context it was just about us kind of getting to know uh, one another in breakout rooms so we had to find something so I did a mad scramble um, around my house to find something um, and one of the important questions that came up once this sat, uh, once this task was set which I thought was an important one was what do we mean by ethnicity um, and they the facilitators talked about language behaviours beliefs um, religion beliefs and practices things that are central to your family identity and or your wider community so it kind of struck me in that moment how how sort of broad and wide-ranging this term ethnicity can be and what it can encompass um they talked about ethnicity sometimes being acquired or inherited inherited um, and they talked for example about jewishness is often part of your ethnicity um so yeah 
then we had to go do a mad scramble and find something. Um, now, I decided that I wasn't going to find an object. I decided that I was going to play a piece of music instead um, because a, part, a big part of my kind of family heritage background and I suppose that feeds into my family identity is my mum's uh, um, heritage, Italian heritage from a place um, in Italy called Barga, not too far from Pisa. Um, and some Somebody else whose family descends from uh, Barga is Paolo Nettini, um, who is a popular artist um, who wrote a song called Candy. So that's what I brought. But anyway, we had a whole range of different objects that people brought, um, jewellery, uh, kind of family heirlooms, artefacts, a whole range of things. It just opened up this really lovely discussion um, around ethnicity um, and it really helped us to kind of get to know one another in a, I felt, deeper way than just say who you are and what you do. So that's that was a nice example. And I and I suppose, you know, any subject, there's there's an opportunity if you're in secondary and thinking or even if you're in primary, there's an opportunity to start a conversation around identity, around ethnicity that kind of just starts with something that is is um, is all about you. Um, so that's that. Um, and I'm just going to pose the question to you, Tom. You don't have to answer it yet. Um, what would you bring? What would be your artifact? Um, and the second something to try was something that Barry Crompton, who is the senior mentor at Stanwell School in Penarth, um, did as an exercise at the start of his first school-led training day with a brand new cohort of, um, of uh, PGC student teachers. And the exercise is called what's in a name um, and it was basically uh, the task was to just tell the story of your name um, and he left it as open as that so I told the story because uh, my name is quite boring my name is Emma Thayer um, although my <laughs> my dad's side of the family are probably if they ever listen to this episode raging that I've said it's quite boring uh, I decided not to tell the name of my um, of uh, my dad's name I decided to tell the story of my mum's maiden name which was Paige and then uh, uh, which was anglicised from Piacentini um, because as I said her her family gen- um, uh, comes from on her mother's side comes from Italy so yeah just a really it just turned into this lovely storytelling introduction that was again just far more interesting and far more memorable I felt like I got to know those individuals on a much deeper level in not too long a period of time um, by getting to understand a bit about their name so Tom well as a bit of podcast serendipity here I can probably address both of those in in one answer because uh, although I was actually born in the north of England, random fact about me, I think I mentioned right back at the start of the podcast, I was born in Bolton, but actually my dad's side of the family is from um, the South Wales Valleys. And obviously I'm a musician. There are not very many musicians in my family at all, but the the one, the one where it looks like it might have come from is my, my grandfather on my dad's side. And he was a chapel organist and accompanist, um, you know, and I've been an organist and accompanist. We never knew each other because he died when I was about six months old. So I, I don't remember him at all. Um, but I'm named after him. And I think probably the object, therefore, that I would, I would pick somewhere sitting around in my parents' house, um, there's an old miner's lamp that used to belong to I think it was him it was either him or his father I'm not sure but yes I come from a a long line of uh, South Wales Valleys 
minors uh, and I'm named after the one who was also a chapel organist and um, an accompanist so I can answer both your questions in one go there oh I like that Tom and of course <laughs> if, you, if your kind of pedagogy head is starting to tick over there are lots of different things that you could teach based around the, that kind of stimulus that artifact um, you know so it could take you in an interesting curriculum direction um, or could produce some really interesting artistic outputs as would be the case um, if I were to use this in a drama context so I just thought that they were nice two nice activities to share if you're just trying to get to know your new group or get to know your pupils a bit better um, or yeah if you just want to do something um, around the dinner table which is quite interesting and fun very nice some things to try okay going to move on to it's probably my equivalent of a blog it's actually an opinion piece um and this is this is probably me just being a little bit self-indulgent and uh letting out a few of my uh, my pet hates because i know you're going to be coming up with something nice after this so i'm going to yeah. try and uh, clear the palette with a bit of mean <laughs> <laughs> brilliant so um you will probably remember i mean by the time this comes out this this will feel a little bit of a longer time ago but you'll remember there was a there was a multi-hour period when facebook and all of its bits went down and mm. stopped working nobody could get on whatsapp nobody could get yeah. on instagram and all sorts of things so there's been a been a bit of a slew of articles about facebook lately there was also that whistleblower wasn't there that testified in front of um congress the other day and really went to town on her former employers mm. um and so i've been sort of uh, poking about I mean, i've been thinking about doing this for a little while because um you know spoiler alert i do tend to think that facebook is pretty much the most evil thing going i absolutely detest it and all that it stands for yeah <laughs> you're not going to find me on there folks um i i can i can cope with most most social networks but facebook just just gets away from me in terms of its its pure banality and evil so i've been i've been reading <laughs> quite a lot of quite good articles about you know there's there's some fab stuff in the atlantic you know facebook is an authoritarian state was a highlight and facebook is the doomsday <laughs> machine was another good one um, but they were a bit long <laughs> and you know me i like to come a little bit left field so i'm going to I'm going to let out my anti-Facebook thing now um, with an opinion piece that comes from um, a, a publication about IT called The Register, which is a, a pretty irreverent um, publication about IT, but it is actually genuinely a proper specialist publication, but they tend to be quite um, quite spiky and irreverent in the way that they put things. And they published an opinion piece the other day, uh, which goes as follows. At the time of writing, it's been exactly 100 hours since Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp crept back out of the void onto the internet. They'd been gone for six hours or $7 billion if you measure out your life by Mark Zuckerberg's net worth, which we don't recommend. The time for hot takes has passed. We're now in the brief window for sober analysis before everyone forgets it ever happened. Next Thursday, by current standards. There are three angles that matter. One is the pure technical side, how a giant corporation built out of the most resilient networking technologies ever created just vanished. One is what it teaches us about Facebook's importance to our daily lives. The last is what it tells us about Facebook itself, where it goes next, and whether its strip mining of societal values for profit will continue. The technical side is simply put, someone, most likely a hapless system administrator, tried to check backbone availability but shut down access to the company's DNS servers instead. Hilarity ensued. Did it matter? Yes and no. There are lots and lots of small businesses that reply on face, uh, rely on Facebook pages to talk to their customers. They had six hours of uncertainty. WhatsApp has been widely adopted as a team channel by all sorts of people who had to wait to plot, plan or parcel out work. Families dealing with sickness or crises remotely suffered. 
You don't turn a multi-billion user service off without pain, and most of that was felt by people with the least heard of voices. But think what would happen if Google, Microsoft, or Amazon had a total service outage like that. Even the partial ones we've seen have created universal concern that was absent here. Instead of concern, there was a sigh of relief all round and a surge of schadenfreude amongst that hapless system administrator's peers. That's unusual and noteworthy. Most administrators and other ops types have huge sympathy when an internal fumble by one of the clan causes public conniptions. There but for the grace of God is the rule. This time, not so much. Normally, everyone in the business recognises that work is work. But the social network seems like social death for network admins. Whistleblowers are the enemy. The media is to, ignore, to be ignored, rebuffed or treated like idiots. And what the hell do regulators or governments know anyway? Best practice is what Facebook says it is, not what anyone else decides. This is hubris. Characteristic of a company that's too powerful to care. State telephone companies had it. IBM in the 1960s had it. And Microsoft in the 1990s. Neither are by any means cured. And Apple, Google, Amazon all have it too. But where Facebook is uniquely vulnerable is that if it goes away, it doesn't much matter, even in the medium term. It's a social network and nothing but, and users can rebuild that social interaction on a different platform in weeks. Others stand ready to take the advertising and analytics spend. Facebook embodies the single point of failure. It has no friends it cannot buy, just enemies it cannot pay off. Six hours on a Facebook-free planet felt like 6,000 hours too few, and now we know it. Does Facebook? Oh, <laughs> I love the fact that even the other system administrators didn't feel any sympathy for the poor guy or, or lady that took the whole thing down for six hours. That was quite telling, I thought. Yeah, very. <laughs> social network is social death. Oh, I hate Facebook. I hate it. Oh, well, according <laughs> to that author, it doesn't much matter. No, no, absolutely not. Well, I, I was briefly on it many, many years ago, and then I, I bailed out of it because I just hated it. One of the things I found really interesting about Facebook, just as a, as a side issue here, is that sometimes I would look at the profiles of people I was friends with in real life, and I would read the profiles, and I think, if I didn't know you in real life, I think you were a really awful person. <laughs> And yet I know you were really good. So it, it made even people I like come across really badly. Yeah, I I have a kind of love-hate relationship with Facebook. I don't go on it very often. I do occasionally. Um, and I, I it's it's like it's like something you're in a relationship, someone you're in a relationship with and it and it's particularly toxic and you're kind of thinking, oh gosh, it's gonna take so much for me to extricate myself from this thing um because actually all they get you all my photos are on there and it's gonna oh gosh trying to figure out how to save it all and like get away from it so i, I really want to break up with facebook but i uh i i need someone to help me oh i'll help you em yeah i have i've i've dabbled i've dabbled with the thought I've, I've allowed myself to indulge the idea of just getting rid of it altogether but then there is this kind of fear of missing out like what will i not know about my family who live on the other side of the atlantic and but then i always come back to well i probably not know what they had for lunch and you know i think i can live without that factoid yeah, the thing that really, really swung it for me, apart from the fact that I was seeing people that I knew and liked and, and finding that they appeared to be pretty unlikable on Facebook. The other one was that I, I started getting very intolerant of people's banal, stupid status updates. And every time I, I 
you know, got one or two off somebody, I would I would bin them off, off my Facebook. And I suddenly realised the only people I had left were the people I was seeing all the time anyway. And all the people I'd got rid of were, you know, those people that you end up connected with because you knew them 10 years ago or something mm. like that. And I remember thinking, this is a hint to me that mm. when you, you know, people disappear out of your life and you don't see them for 10 years it's probably because you've you're doing different things and you've grown apart and all the rest it's of it it's run its course well you know it's just it just wasn't meant to be they went off to do one thing you went off to do another and and you know you you then can still sort of see into their life a little bit as it as it moves further and further away from yours and that was when i realized that the whole thing was artificial and pointless and yeah i did cause some quite quite great concern amongst friends of mine or, or actually jealousy I think that quite a lot of them were like oh I really wish I could have done that that's what I mean <laughs> that's what I mean this, this idea like, of like being it, brave to like break yeah, ties like with a, Facebook like yeah. I've done this really brave thing I don't know I think I am probably just a deeply antisocial misanthropic <laughs> uh, <laughs> intolerant <laughs> person and therefore maybe I'm more immune to Facebook's charms than most people because I'm basically not a very nice person but <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> and on to the nice stuff from Emma now while I seethe gently in a corner having having let all that out. Oh gosh, Tom, <laughs> this is total well-being cheese in comparison. Oh, I'm no, just going right. to juxtapose. I'm going to I'm going to just undermine everything I said about how much I believe in what Tom Sherrington like to said. Gently torture one another in these sessions, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'm going to, again, um, just expose my my imposter syndrome to a little bit of kind of uh, openness and honesty here. And and, um, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this lady's name shamefully. And I've said her name on the podcast before and I'm just going to try my best. I'm sorry. It's either Hallie or Hayley Rubenhold. Um, And she is the best-selling author of The Five, um, a book that I recommended on the podcast um, a a few seasons ago now, maybe at the start of last season. I can't remember. Time is just strange right now. But The Five is a book of the untold lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper. And I would recommend that book. And I have done in the past. Oh, I remember that, yes. Yeah, do you remember? So um, it's either Hayley or Hallie. Um, Apologies, Hallie, Hayley, really apologise. But she wrote a tweet um back in July of 2021 that um, got me sort of a little bit gushy and, and contacting my my very close friends um and it's very simple and it goes a little something like this there should be a word in the English language for loyal loving friends whom you've known for so long and shared so much with that they've become like family people who you know will always be there for you friend seems too small a word family question mark she says <laughs> and that's it so she's proposing Fr- the word family, family. <laughs> instead of friend family. i mean the sentence <laughs> the sentiments really got me and just uh, you know the antithesis of, of kind of tom's point and which i do agree with about you know there are some people in your lives who you know are there for a time and they've sometimes just run their course and you know that relationship just goes and and that was fine it was what you needed at the time and then it was gone but there are some friends that really are the best of friends and they deserve a better word friend is not enough they are more than podcasters <laughs> yeah yeah we'll go with that yeah well i don't think i don't think my new my new uh tech startup framily book is gonna uh, get very far but there we are. 
was hoping that was going to make me millions. Framily book. Framily there we book. go. Yeah, you get a very, very tiny number of friends on it, and they're genuine ones. Uh, <laughs> good grief! Oh well, it was worth it was worth mentioning that tweet yes. just to uh, see Tom's cynicometer <laughs> go off the charts. Uh, it's it's not you, it's me. We know this. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel, I can taste the misanth- misanthropy. Is that yeah, is that even a word? That. We'll go with that. Oh dear. The and students on... think I'm so nice. <laughs> it's because you perform it so well. Yeah, We've covered yeah, this. I'm a performer. <laughs> well, once again, we've gotten to the end of another light episode. We hope you found that uh, entertaining. Uh, we hope it's been a break from the humdrum and we hope that you feel suitably refreshed after a half term of uh, not doing much or maybe just doing something different and uh, seeing to your, your well-being in a way that is pragmatic and totally uncheesy, devoid of all cheese. Hope you're having a lovely time with the family. Yes, enjoy that family time <laughs> and uh, we'll be back in your ears in another fortnight. Yes, see you soon. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Prees. This episode was brought to you by Tom Sherrington, The New Yorker, The National Theatre, Barry Crompton, Laura Pickering-Payne, The Register, and Hallie, maybe Haley, Rubenhold. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford, and the music is by Cameron Stewart. Normal service will be resumed in a fortnight. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Thanks, family. <laughs> Never going to live that one down. Well-being cheese. Well-being cheese. <laughs>